Good morning. Please uh, turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 1. Um, I say that, and I know a lot of you are using the, 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 the Mary, Mary, are you on the, the Bible? Bible? You like the, the app? Which one do you use? Uh, the the version. The version. yeah, that's very popular. I guess Bible Gateway probably also has a, an app, you know, so, you know, one of those, that's cool. Personally, I'm of the opinion that nothing beats a Bible in your hand. Uh, that's all right. Um, but uh, I forgot mine today. So thankfully, we have other Bibles that you know, are around the church, so I, I grabbed one, and that, that's okay. Um, good morning again. We are, this is the first Sunday, first Sunday here at uh, New Hope, first Sunday of the month. And every first Sunday, we invite the EDGE students to stay in service and, and kind of join us for the sermon. And guys, uh, for you EDGE students, we're continuing in our series, Gospel Truth, which is a trek through the first few chapters of the book of Mark. And we're not going to do the whole thing. We'll probably move into something else for the summer, and we'll hop around a bit when we get to Holy Week. You see, the point isn't just the, that we're going to trek through the book of the, of, of the Bible. The point is that we are gathering a more robust understanding of this thing called the Gospel. Gospel means what? It means good news. And we gather on Sunday mornings to remind each other that God has good news for all people. You don't have to look far to know that this world is broken. And God is putting this world back together again, one human being at a time. And if you're not already a follower of Jesus, um, He hopes you're next. And if you are already a follower of Jesus, he is calling you to know him and feel his love more and more every day. So that's why we're here. Over the past month, we've been studying this book of Mark, which is uh, one of four accounts, four stories of Jesus' life that we have in the Bible. Um, The others are the stories of Matthew and Luke and and John, all of which tell the story of Jesus' life. The story that some have called the greatest story ever told. It's right up there with Star Wars. The book of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels, and it was probably written first. Now, did you notice what I just did there? I, I, I called the book of Mark a gospel. You see, we've already learned that gospel means good news, and, and that means that we're saying that the good news we have to announce, it, it, it's, it's like a, a man selling a newspaper on the corner, extra, extra, reading all about it. I guess they don't really do that anymore, but anyway, if, if you bought that newspaper and you read the story behind this good news, the words in the newspaper would, would tell the story, the, the words of the article would tell the story of Jesus' life, and, and that's what would be in the paper under the headline, you know, Jesus begins to put world back together. So there's 16 chapters in the book of Mark, and we're almost at the end of chapter 1. For those of you who haven't been with us every week, just uh, allow me to catch you up. The book of Mark opens with words of prophecy. Prophecy is like ancient poetry that God uses to tell people about how things would, would play out in the future or how they play out always. You see, we don't just believe that the story of Jesus was a great story that kind of sits alone on the shelf. No, Jesus ha- had a prequel, just like Star Wars, um, called The Story of Israel. 
or what you may have heard referred to as the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament is pointing towards God doing something that's going to put the world back together again. And the book of Mark begins by telling folks to wake up, get ready, because God's about to do something amazing. Mark then tells, them about, tells us about John the Baptist, this kind of like wild wilderness man, who tells the people how they can prepare for what God's about to do. He tells them to repent, which, which means literally, it, it, it means that they should change direction. You see that they're going in their own direction. They're following other things rather than God. And John the Baptist is going to call them back to true north by calling them to take part in this ritual known as baptism, which is something we still do today to, to announce to the world that we have decided to dedicate our lives to following in God's direction. Now, one day, someone comes to be baptized that John wasn't expecting. Does anybody know who it was? Gee, right. It's always the answer, right? (laughs) Jesus. Jesus comes to be baptized, but the difference is that Jesus didn't have any sins to repent of, right? He had been moving in God's direction already. In fact, the reason he was getting baptized by John was because he intended, intended on continuing in God's direction. Jesus goes down into the river, and when he raises his head up out of the water, he hears God's voice He hears his father's voice saying, you are my son, the beloved, and with you I am well pleased. Remember, Jesus is how God is putting the world back together, and when he gets baptized and hears God say this to him, it's as if God is telling him, way to go, you're on the right track. However, just because we follow God's path and his direction, well, that doesn't mean it's smooth sailing from there. In fact, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that oftentimes the path of God is the rockiest road of all. It certainly was for Jesus. After he got out of that river, Mark tells us that Jesus was immediately driven, driven into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. A constant presence in the book of Mark are these like evil spiritual forces like Satan and demons and unclean spirits. And you might say that they're like the bad guys of the story, but the thing is, they don't seem to be much of a match for Jesus at all. And they test him, they may even exhaust him, and they really kind of annoy him, but in each episode, he comes out on top. Jesus comes back from from this time in the wilderness and declares these words, which may be the most important words in the book of Mark. He declares these words throughout the land of Galilee, the time is fulfilled The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news or believe in the gospel. These are the first words that Jesus says in the book of Mark. It's like, I don't know, his thesis statement. It's like his marching orders to everyone who continues to read the rest of of Mark's book. You've prepared, you've repented, and now I've got your attention. Now watch this. What's he do next? He goes for a leisurely seaside walk and comes upon a group of fishermen whom he calls to follow. And Jesus says, follow me. I I will make you fish for people. Derek Miller was with us a few weeks ago, and and he talked about how these these soon-to-be disciples were, 
were in desperate need of good news. And when the good news finally arrived, it, arrived, it, it came in the form of a call to follow. It's like their, their Salisbury Hill moment. Grab your things. I've come to take you home. They, they were given a vision of... Peter Gabriel reference, sorry. Yeah. They were, they were given a vision of the kingdom of God and called onto that path. Uh, Derek said, the, the thing is this, God's kingdom is not full of people who volunteer to do something for God. We are called out ones with a vocation to join God in the work of building for his kingdom. The truth is that Jesus is the only one worth following. Last week we saw Jesus enter a synagogue and begin to teach. And Mark says that the words he used were ones of authority. These words distributed, um, disturbed what Mark called um, what was an evil spirit in the room. The spirit begins to whine and kind of, Jesus just has no time for this. He tells the spirit, be quiet. Or really, shut up. And everyone in the synagogue was just amazed that this unclean spirit, you know, listens to Jesus and does what he says. Verse 28 says, at once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Jesus' movement had already begun to gain momentum, and that is where we pick up this morning. Turning to Mark chapter 1, verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, They entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Interesting little note at the end. So they go over to Simon Peter's house to watch the game after church. And it it had to have been a college game, by the way, because it was a Saturday. You'll get that later. Um, they came into the room, and Peter says, um, hey, guys, uh, you got to keep it down. You know, my mother-in-law, she's sick in bed. And James and John are like, you live with your mother-in-law? And Simon Peter's like, my mother-in-law lives with me. Um, and after they move past that moment of tension, Jesus goes in her room and, and, and kind of takes her hand. Now, this was a big cultural no-no. First of all, it was Sabbath, right? So you're not supposed to do healings on the Sabbath. And secondly, men of social standing didn't just go up and touch a woman who wasn't their wife and take them by the hand. This would have been especially out of the ordinary if she was sick. Folks in those days might have equated fevers with some sort of sin. And if you're about to start a holy religious movement, you want to make sure things are on the up and up. But nevertheless, Jesus comes right to her bedside. He takes her by the hand and he helps her to her feet. And she stands up and the fever left her. And Simon Peter says, glad you're feeling better, Mom. How about some chips and drinks for me and my friends? <laughs> and she began to serve them. It's, it's in, read your Bibles. Sorry, I, I, think that, <laughs> I think the reason that Mark includes the detail about her serving them is to show that this kind of complete turnaround. Um, the complete turnaround of, of Jesus' miracle. She, she was a woman who was sick in bed with a fever. And after a moment with Jesus, she wasn't, she wasn't just feeling better for her own benefit. She was actively involved in serving other people. What's the word in that for us? After, you'll notice, um, also that you'll notice that, that, uh, that, that Mark mentions Simon, uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, but, but doesn't mention his wife. Um, we'll have to speculate there, but... 
it's important to think about the fact that Simon Peter had a household that depended on his own, on his provision. And, and remember that the church would ultimately be built on Peter's shoulders. The fact that, that Jesus blesses this home that Peter is responsible for, uh, that's a lesson to us regarding Jesus' provision for our church. Um, continuing in verse 32. That evening, at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or, or possessed with demons. And the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and, and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Remember what Mark had said about Jesus' fame spreading rapidly after his time in the synagogue. And, and now it's that night. After sunset means that the Sabbath was over. The people who, who caught wind of the fact that this miracle worker was in town um, now began to gather at Peter's door. Pretty soon it seemed as though the whole city was about to like knock Peter's door down. And, and Jesus gets to work. He cures the sick. He heals various diseases. He, he cast out demons and, and wouldn't even let them speak. His authority over the physical aspects of this episode, they were apparent. But have you noticed that there was like something kind of missing there? The, the healings aided him in proclaiming the message, which was his mission. The healings, they, they weren't um, uh, the reason he was there, though. He was there to proclaim the message of God's kingdom. He was there to preach repentance. But the crowd, it appears, were beginning to only be interested in his healing powers. It, it would have been very easy for Jesus to just shut up, set up shop right there. He was quickly becoming the most popular guy in town. The thing about Mark's gospel is that um, it's so fast moving. One thing happens on top of the, mo- uh, on the other. And, and one minute, Jesus is taking this leisurely stroll next to the Sea of Galilee. And the next minute, he, he has a few hundred people around him asking him for his attention. Uh, you would think that, that in the thick of this momentum, it would have been the easy thing to say, well, let's not stop now. Let's capitalize on this excitement. Let's build a huge following right here in this town. But instead... He has the wisdom to to withdraw. Look at verse 35. In the morning, while while it was still very dark, at 5 a.m. time, maybe earlier, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. Those words, in the morning while it was still dark, that may be difficult for some of us to hear. Some of us are morning people. Others prefer to hurl insults at morning people. I mean, I love to sleep, don't get me wrong, but uh, actually, if I'm being honest with myself, I, I actually I do typically find myself at, at my best first thing in the morning. Um, if I tried to do quiet time late at night, I think, I think I'd just be a mess. Um, I just have a thousand things kind of swimming around in my head at that time of night. But a few years ago, we took our youth group um, on a weekend service trip to Pittsburgh, uh, we spent our days kind of volunteering at, at various places with um, time for worship and, and devotion mixed in for good measure. So, you know, if you've ever been on one of these kind of weeks, it, it's a jam-packed week just full of stuff. And I realized that, that it would probably be a good idea for me to be as clear-headed and refreshed as possible. Not to mention, I, I can't really wake up until, you know, I've had a shower and a cup of coffee and all that. So I made it a habit. I said, you know, if I'm going to get this done, if I'm actually going to do this the way that it should be done, 
I need to wake up at 5 a.m. every morning, no matter how late we went to bed, no matter how much foolishness those kids got into late at night, uh, I needed to get up. Only a few others were up that early, so the solitude uh, was just what I needed to start the day with prayer and stay on point for the day. When the alarm clock went off, it was painful. But by midday, I was, I was grateful that I had made the time. There's one quote, check out your bulletins, I came across this week. I loved it so much, I decided to print it up all for you. It's by Sam Wells from a book called Incarnational Ministry that I was given as an ordination gift. And he talks about early morning prayer. He says, prayer is the first event of the day. Not necessarily the first thing a person does on awaking, but the first event that makes a day more than merely survival, that points to the source and destiny of all things, that makes a person aware that they are not a self-creator, they are not a self-redeemer. The presence of the disciple before God is a recognition that God is present before them at every moment in the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, presence in prayer is the disciples' acknowledgement in body, mind, and spirit of the Holy Spirit's constant presence. I know that there are some people who who roll right out of bed on their knees. People who do that. Dedicating their day to God. And if that that is you, well done. Um, But I don't think that's the only way. I like what Wells says there uh, uh, that, that prayer should be seen as the first event of the day. I know there is plenty of days when, when I don't feel much like talking to God, and actually that's just fine. I think it's more to the point for me to think about how much I listen to God. And this is best accomplished in solitude. It's best accomplished in silence. So I've attempted, so some have attempted to distinguish between uh, what Amy was talking about, uh, between solitude, which is time away, but it's time away with God. It's time away with oneself, as opposed to isolation, which could be seen as a time of closing yourself off to everything, including God and even your own self-awareness. In solitude, you're intentionally removing yourself from the busyness of the day in order to refresh, in order to refocus. In isolation, you may be escaping from the busyness of life, but you may also be escaping from the only one or attempting to escape from the only one who can offer true refreshment. It might seem that that time of solitude first thing in the morning is kind of like isolation, but, but Wells continues there. He says, when the busy world is hushed, the fever of life is silent, and the work or pleasure of the day is set aside, it's in fact a rare moment of relief from isolation. Listen to this. The fervid day is a time of isolation, of living according to this understanding that you only get what you acquire and secure for yourself. By contrast, personal prayer is a dismantling of isolation. It's a moment of recognition that you are safe within the embrace of the everlasting arms. And there is one who knows you, who knows your hopes and fears better than you know them yourself, who watches over you even while you sleep. It is this with that turns isolation into presence. So, you you know, you've gotten up on time. You've you've had your solitude. You've had your time of centering prayer. 
And then you, you get to work, right? And someone might say, yeah, you, know, you seem happy today. And you respond, oh, great. You know, I, I had a good morning. I woke up early. I had a cup of coffee with God. I read my Bible. I prayed. I just gave, I gave the first 30 minutes of my day to him. And that person looks back at you and says the three most cringe-worthy words in the English language must be nice. For some, that just rolls off their back. And, and maybe I should be more like those people. But for me, it, it hurts me when people say that. So I'm here to tell you this morning, um, you never have to apologize for spending time alone with God. You never have to apologize for prioritizing your own quiet time. I don't care how important you are. Maybe you're a doctor. Maybe you're a lawyer. Maybe you're a teacher. Maybe you're a father or a mother. Maybe you're a student. Or maybe you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. No one is so busy that they shouldn't spend time alone with God. Because the truth is that when I don't make time for solitude, and that is far too frequent, it has nothing to do with me being too busy. It has everything to do with me not prioritizing it in my day. I mean, I can only speak for myself. If Jesus needed time alone with the Father, how much more do I need it? Maybe it won't be first thing in the morning. Depending on your schedule and your type of work, maybe you need to get to work and, and address, address like a first batch of emails you know, for the day or kind of get your workstation in order. I don't know what it is for you. What I do know is that each and every person in this room would benefit from 15 minutes in a chair, just you and God. Continuing on in verse 36. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. Evidently, time alone with God helped Jesus stay focused on the task at hand. The previous day was full of excitement. It was full of wonder. He healed and brought peace to those he touched. He looked into the eyes of people who had spent years of their life hurting, now free from pain, free from social stigma. And that's a good thing, right? I'm, I'm bringing joy to people who didn't know the meaning of the word. But, but something's not quite right. Jesus needed to spend time in solitude, in reflection with the Father, to help him stay focused on the mission at hand. The disciples had to search for him. After all, living rooms are not the best place for, uh, they're, they're, they're a great place for small group time. They aren't the best place for quiet time. Jesus had to go off and find a, a deserted place, a quiet place, a place where people didn't tend to go. They finally found him, and of course, they're, they're just out of breath. Jesus, Jesus, this is just fantastic. We got loads of people gathered around the house. Man, we're really cooking now. You're the hottest thing that this town has seen in years. We got to get back home immediately. Everybody's looking for you. And maybe if Jesus hadn't spent that time alone, if he had ridden that wave of momentum, burning his candle at both ends, getting burned out, he would have wanted to, uh, to stay But instead, he looks up at Simon Peter and he says, "Mm, let's go to neighboring towns. 
Let's go to the neighboring towns. So that I may proclaim the message there also, because this is what I came to do. I mean, think about that in your next quiet time. What is it that you are called to do? Jesus' mission was to proclaim the message of the kingdom of God. His mission was to call people to repentance, to wake them up for what God was doing in their midst. The healings, the miracles, they were good things, and he would continue to do them for the rest of his earthly ministry. But they, in and of themselves, they weren't the gospel. What are you called to do? What is it for you that, that is appealing in the moment that might steal your attention if you don't spend regular time refocusing with God on true north? Is it a nicer office? Maybe it's a new position. Maybe it's a new title. That's how you're, you're defining success. Maybe it's just a bigger paycheck. See, those things are good things, but, but you tell me whether they're the reason why you got into the, the business that you're involved in in the first place. And maybe they are. And if that's the case, maybe that's cause for a, for a different conversation. But my hope, my suspicion, is that God has whispered a purpose in your, in your ear that is greater than any paycheck or any prestige Because you and I both know that there are those who have wandered down far darker paths than new offices and even bigger paychecks. There have been those who have ridden the wave of momentum, the momentum of the day, the thing that looks good in the moment, and the next thing that they knew, they lost their family. Please consider Consider how important time alone would be for you. Consider what it looks like. Um, sometimes the, the first thing that we think of when we think about an issue like this, when we think about solitude, when we think about the importance there, uh, is the, it, it, we, we start to think about all the ways that it doesn't apply to us. Well, I, I can't have quiet time with God because of A, B, and C. You know, because I got to get the kids this place. I got to get, you know, I got these emails. I got my boss is just, you know, he's, he's, he's ringing me constantly. And you start to think of all these reasons why, you know, all of these excuses as to why we wouldn't have quiet time. And, you know, every person in this room is different. I don't want to imply that, that anybody is going to have a hard time finding it. I am going to say, I imagine that it was hard for Jesus, <laughs> you know. Um, with, with all those people th- knowing that he was this miracle worker there, and he prioritized that time away. He said, I need solitude. I need time alone with my father. I need to have a conversation with him. I need to um, spend time listening to him, and that's how, why the Bible and Scripture is so important for us. I don't know what it looks like for you, but please consider where 15 minutes would fit into your schedule in a chair just you and God. We pray for us. Father, sometimes the most simple things, like going off and spending some quiet time in a chair, might seem like the most difficult. It's hard for us to prioritize what needs to be prioritized and um, to make that time when it seems like so many other things are urgently needing our attention. Help us to not sacrifice the important on the altar of the urgent. Help us to consider what you would be calling us um, to, to, to be, what, what you would be asking of us in regards to the time that we spend alone with you.
help us to have other people in our lives that would hold us accountable to that. If we're married, what does it mean for you to, to hold your spouse accountable for their quiet time and make sure that they have it in your home? Um, help us to, to do that business, to actually think through what, are, what is actually the practical steps that's going to need to take place for me to get that quiet time, for the people I love in my home to have that quiet time. Father, speak to us, whisper to us, shout it from the rooftops at us. We just pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.